General Stone. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Congress cannot require states to administer a nationwide child custody regime. As far as the state is aware, this court has upheld only three kinds of laws, even under a plenary congressional power over Indian tribes. First, those regulating trade or implementing treaties with tribes than the ordinary original understandings of those clauses. Second, those applying to Indians within U.S. territories or on Indian lands. And third, those regulating tribal governments as such. ICWA far exceeds this plenary power, applying only to child custody proceedings in state courts off reservations. Even if Congress could establish such a scheme, however, it cannot order states to enforce it. ICWA issues a dozen commands to states or their officials. Each obscures federal accountability for ICWA, and each foists uncompensated costs onto states. Each is therefore pro prohibited under Murphy. And I welcome the court's questions. I think General Stone, it would uh, profit us uh, that uh, if you would address your standing in this case. Uh, particularly since it seems that if, uh, to the extent that you're representing parents or uh, potential parents, uh, they can represent themselves. And I think it'd be good to get an explanation of your standing. Certainly, Your Honor. First and foremost, consistent with West Virginia versus EPA from last term, Texas is in fact the regulated party, the party obligated to implement ICWA from beginning to end. As this court put it in West Virginia, the fact that West Virginia and similar states were the ones who were required to cut emissions and otherwise alter their energy distribution, that was enough to leave, quote, little doubt as to their standing for the entirety of the Clean Power Plan. Second, Texas, Texas stands to lose substantial amounts of Medicare, or rather Social Security, Part 4B and Part 4E money in 2018. Texas received $410 million underneath those parts. Those parts are expressly conditioned on Texas taking affirmative steps to comply with ICWA and the regulations implementing those sections, 45 CFR 1355.34 and 36, make clear in mandatory language that if Texas does not in fact do so, if any state does not do so, in mandatory language that the relevant administrative entity shall withhold through a complex formula up to 42 percent uh, of, that, of that $410 million for Texas. That comes out to about $172 million for an agency with a $2.4 billion budget. So a very significant amount. And then finally speaking is to their specific equal protection injury. Aside from the fact that it costs us money to implement the equal protection violating provisions, for example, we have to determine whether or not an individual is an Indian child pursuant to the regulations in the statute. Aside from that, there's a unique conjunction of constitutional obligations here that because this court has held in Adirond that the federal equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause essentially have the same commands, any command by the federal government that violates the Fifth Amendment that imposes a mandatory requirement on states to essentially carry out that equal protection violative component requires the states to violate equal protection. And that is a unique constitutional injury that Texas as a state, as an actor, suffers. This is uh, quite a theory you have. 
every time that a state has to interpret a federal law that might be unconstitutional, the state has standing even if that law hurts somebody else. That's what you're basically saying, because we would be complicit in the act of violating someone else's rights. That's how I hear your argument. Certainly not, Your Honor. It actually is much narrower than that. So take a- How narrow? You don't have, and Justice Thomas pointed out, the Fifth Amendment in our cases are legion. You can't represent individuals who have equal protection claims. The parents are here before us. They can defend their own claims. I can understand your anti-commandeering, your anti-delegation claims. Potentially, that has to do with your expenses. But those other equal protection violations of being treated unequally belong to the parents, not to Texas. Two components, Your Honor. First of all, Texas suffers a classic pocketbook injury when it has to actually implement. So you're saying exactly what I started with. You're taking the extraordinary position that any time you have to enforce an unconstitutional law, you're complicit and you have standing. No, Your Honor. No, it's, it results from a conjunction of a few extremely unusual components of these commands. One is, and we can discuss this as part of our, the anti-commandeering section, we do not view these commands as permissible preemption under NCAA versus Murphy, but as commands to the states. Those commands from that's the anti federal government- That's anti-commandeering, so that's one factor. What's second? The commands from the federal government themselves violate the Fifth Amendment's equal protection component. That equal protection As it applies to the individuals? Yes. Okay. That's correct. And, and we're back to what I said before. Now, what's your third? Your Honor, because, because that Fifth Amendment equal protection violation is coterminous with Texas's equal protection requirements, if Texas implements the Fifth Amendment violation, it itself violates the 14th Amendment. Because they are, in fact, coterminous. We're back, we're back to my first point. General Stone, can I ask you about the anti-commandeering point? So I'm trying to figure out how this works. So the question that I asked Mr. McGill, is this the active efforts provision, one that imposes an obligation on the states alone, or is it something that could also fall on private agencies or private parties? Well, the final rules preamble helps solve this question as specifically to, to the active efforts provision, where the final rule states that the active efforts provision in ICWA was intended to make states provide substantive services to Indian families. Comes out in, in express language to make states, in fact, incur that cost to provide social services. That's the heart of what Murphy was cautioning about, is that specifically a command best understood as requiring a state to do a thing especially when it either hides political accountability or foists uncompensated costs on the states, is in the heartland of the anti-commandeering doctrine. This, under that second branch, is an easy case for purposes, for purposes specifically of active efforts. We have other provisions we're challenging with other bases. Happy to discuss if, if you're curious. Well, record-keeping seems to go a bit farther than some of our other cases. We reserved that in Prince. This court reserved it in Prince with some very specific caveats, I agree, Your Honor. Specifically, the court said it might, in fact, be permissible given that, and as Justice Scalia noted, it was unclear in that case, given that those courts regarding the naturalization oaths may well have volunteered essentially to that jurisdiction. And then it becomes a case of if the courts are willingly serving for purposes of, of doing this federal thing, that then it's a much smaller intrusion, commandeering or not, for them to have an ancillary paperwork 
burden. Of course, states aren't volunteering for ICWA in the first place. And I think the thinness of the historical evidence specifically on this point comes from the seven laws that respondents cite. Of those, two of them are patently unconstitutional on other grounds. One is one of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Another is essentially a law that required a court make a determination on pension eligibility that was reviewable by an executive branch. So those tell us nothing about the Constitution because they're riven with a plain constitutional violation. Two more essentially have nothing to do with states at all, or one more has nothing to do with states at all, which is the Homesteading Act of 1862, does not mention state courts or state governments in any way, cannot possibly tell us anything about anti-commandeering. Two more past that make it up permissible, but not mandatory, for states to accept bail regarding certain federal fugitives or federal prisoners. And the only two left are the same two that are mentioned in prints regarding record keeping for naturalizations, with the, which this court looked at as essentially not enough to determine the question even there. So the laws they give as historical evidence are far from something to demonstrate even what Prince showed, let alone enough of generalized no courts component. But Mr. Stone, that assumes that anti-commandeering applies in this entire area. And can you speak to my concern about that? I understood from New York versus United States that anti-commandeering rests on the premise that Congress has the power to regulate individuals and not states, which may well be true as a general matter, but in terms of Indian affairs, we have long interpreted the Constitution to give Congress plenary authority um, precisely because uh, the Constitution seems to be structured to give Congress, the federal government, power at the expense of the states with respect to Indian affairs. It's sort of like the, the, the background principle of all of this was that states were getting involved in Indian affairs and the Constitution says no, Congress can, is the one that gets to direct it. I don't understand why wrapped up in that authority isn't Congress's authority to, to direct the states to stay out of the way or to do whatever it is that's necessary to ensure that you know, Indian affairs, Indian sovereignty is protected. Two answers, Your Honor. Yes. One coming from this court's case law and then one from the original materials. One, and this is the nearest analog of which I'm aware, of course this court was brought an argument that under the Indian Commerce Clause was a sufficiently plenary power to breach state sovereign immunity. Uh, that seminal tribe in this court rejected that, and not only rejected that argument, it overturned Union Gas in the process. So this court has recognized, it actually made this explicit in Delaware versus Weeks, there may be a plenary power, but it is not absolute. And the, the lack of that absolute component has been used, has been sort of applied for specifically preserving the sovereign prerogatives of the states before. Council, That's the if I might um, interrupt, I'm sorry, but just I want to understand your commandeering argument. It seems like it's centrally related to two rather modest aspects of ICWA. One is the record-keeping requirement, which you discussed with Justice Barrett. Is that right? That is one of them, yes. And the other major one that you, you cite is, um, is, is, is the active efforts provision. There are others we also challenge. Those are two of the most major we agree. Okay, and, and those are the major ones. All right. And with respect to active efforts, I, I'm not sure I heard an answer to Justice Barrett's question. Um, I, I, her question was, does it apply equally to whomever is bringing the, um, the action in state court, whether it's the state, as it is sometimes, or private parties, as it is sometimes? That active efforts requirement, does it apply to both equally? To both yes, equally no. And so to both yes, it is under some circumstances that private parties have to make these efforts. 
Typically, that is the state, as again was acknowledged in the, in the final rule. Typically because it's the party um, activate, starting the proceedings, right? Typically, yes, but, but also— not, not always. Not always. No, that's correct. But also, later in the active efforts provision, recall again in this in Murphy, the court said the, the way that the court looks at it is, is this better looked at as a regulation of the sovereign or instead as some regulating private? Okay. I got the it. active efforts provision specifically speaks to what a state court may do with its official power. Right. May I come back to the question whether the anti-commandeering doctrine applies at all when Congress is exercising its power over Indians. <clears throat> Excuse me. Suppose Congress uh, enacted a law ordering the states to enact legislation uh, relating to Indians. Would that be a violation of the anti-commandeering doctrine? I think it would be about the most direct one conceivable, Justice Alito. Counsel, if, if we could turn to Article I. Um, we've had many variations of this, this argument. We've heard that it has to relate strictly to commerce. We've heard no. Later today, we heard uh, no. It can be off-reservation. can be family law sometimes. It just can't be this combination here. What, what, is, what exactly are you asking us to adopt here? What is beyond the Article I power? Certainly, Your Honor. So to clear up a, for a few things that you first mentioned, we are not claiming that there is a domestic relations exception generally. We're not saying that the powers that Congress enjoys must only be exercised on reservations or similarly. Okay. So, so Congress can act off reservations sometimes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And it can do domestic relations sometimes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So what, what's, what's the magic broth that makes this somehow a problem having conceded both those points? Certainly, Your Honor. It's because of the three components of what this court has recognized as plenary power. The first, again, is, for example, the implementation of treaties or acts of, that would be ordinarily understood in commerce. This court has described, for example, Congress as having a plenary power when Congress has prohibited uh, alcohol sales to tribes. Of course, forbidding the sale of alcohol or forbidding any other sale of good would just be an ordinary regulation of commerce. But, but you, we disavowed that argument that it's strictly related to commerce. I, so again, what, what, what is the rule you would have us write? I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out how do I write the opinion? Certainly, Your Honor. There's three components to the plenary power. One are the ordinary applications of the various powers in the Constitution. Right. But which you say is much beyond that. So let's, wh wh where is the limit? The limits come from several of these courts' cases. One, this court has emphasized that Congress has special power. This comes from Tiger versus Western Investment Co. and Kagama itself, that the, the, the government has a power specifically speaking on regulating Indian members or rather Indian tribes on Indian lands themselves. Well, we've, we've said that's not the limit here either. So again, that's, counsel, I'm, I, you've said it doesn't have to be on reservation and it can be domestic relations. So what's, how, how you write this? Respectfully, Your Honor, Congress may act if it, if it is in one of three, essentially, parcels of power. One of them isn't related to geography at all. For example, the exercise of the treaty power, the exercise of, of the commerce power. Of course, the exercise of the territory clause would be geographically related. But in this first bucket, there is not a geographic component. The second, there is one, because as this court recognized, the power goes specifically to the soil and the people within these limits, speaking of Indian country. The third is the power that Congress has essentially to act on Indian governments as governments. So, for example, expanding or investing them with tribal immunity, extending or foreclosing their ability to prosecute crimes or for other sovereigns to prosecute crimes on their land. If Congress is acting pursuant to one of those three components, then it falls comfortably either within the Congress's enumerated powers as originally understood 
or the plenary power, which we are not asking this court even to contract. General, I'm, I'm curious as to where you get those three categories. They're a normative description of what this court has in fact done. Or I mean, there's no rather, place. There's no place where we've said these are the three categories that define what the plenary power means. Correct? There are two places where Congress has specifically stated that there's a special power that track the second and third categories that I'm describing. One, for example, being for the third category regarding governments, being that the, the tribal power, the U.S. Uh, government enjoys essentially a complete power that the that tribal immunity or tribal sovereignty exists at Congress's sufferance. Of course, to say something exists at Congress's sufferance is to say they have something like yeah, an Yeah, I guess power. the only point I was making, that I'm sure that we can find places where the court has said that um, Congress has power over each of these areas, but I don't think you'll be able to find a place where the court has said what the plenary power means is these three things and these three things alone, and the plenary power doesn't extend further. Because after all, the court has said, I mean, I, I don't really believe in, in reading our opinions like statutes, but when the court uses the phrase plenary power tens and tens of times over decades and decades, I mean, plenary means unqualified. It means all-encompassing. Now, I don't doubt what you said earlier, that it might have an occasional exception here or there, but it strikes me as a very odd way to think about plenary power to just start, like, constructing categories and, le and saying everything else is left out when we've said over and over everything except really rare things are in. Two points, Your Honor. First, we agree that we are describing a power that has already left Article I constitutional bounds. Our core exhortation is because it is already beyond the original understanding of the powers Congress has that this court shouldn't extend it further. This court has not come out and said these are the three categories Original and there shall be meaning, no more. We have Justices Marshall and Story basically using very broad language saying plenary powers means all powers in every intercourse with Indians. And we have a series of laws that were not limited in the way that you talked about and we've had series of laws for 200 years not limited. You are excluding from that list all of the trust obligations that include all of the things that Justice Kavanaugh asked about you, health clinics, education, um, marital relations, Indian women who aren't married to white men. These are all outside the three areas you've talked about, but Congress has legislated in them, and certainly as far back as the founding of our Constitution, um, everyone understood plenary meant anything that had to do with the intercourse with Indians and then clearly with the trust obligation the United States took, as your colleague said at the beginning, took over this dependent sovereign nation and its members. Your Honor, I'd like to begin with your observations regarding the trust relationship and then go backwards to story and those uses of intercourse, if you will. The, regarding the trust obligation in Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin, or Menominee Band of Wisconsin Indians and Hickory Apache Nation, this court made clear that, of course, the court has sometimes described a guardianship and ward relationship, a trust relationship. It has used a number of essentially metaphors to describe the relationship between the United States and the tribes, but the obligations underneath that trust, this is a, this is a core component of Hickorilla come from positive law. They come from statutes which dictate obligations by the United States. 
We certainly don't doubt that. However, they do not have a common law component where, because there is in fact a trust, a trust relationship, then therefore the United States has plenary power to do as it wishes to Indians wherever. So regarding the historical understanding of intercourse, speaking specifically about Justice Story's commentaries, which my friends on the other side cite, he speaks about commerce and then speaks about trade and intercourse and pairs intercourse with navigation, just as this court did in Gibbons v. Ogden, which is to say, in Story's example, a rule, for example, about how foreign vessels are to dock in the United States, control over channels of commerce. At no point did Story comment on there being a general Indian affairs power. Also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but th- th- this new rule would, would, I think, take a huge bite out of Title 25 of the U.S. Code, which regulates uh, the federal government's relationship w- with tribal members. Um, there are health care provisions that um, Congress promises to Native Americans off-reservation. That doesn't seem to fall in any of your buckets. Um, uh, Congress has permitted tribes to exercise power over environmental regulations that have indirect effects off reservation. That would, that would seem to go too. Um, we have laws that promise Native Americans access to sacred sites off reservation and religious liberties off reservation. Um, that, that would seem to go. And I'm not even sure maybe the liquor sale, those old precedents, but maybe that's commerce, I don't know. But there would be a lot that would be bitten out of Title 25. We'd be busy for the next many years striking things down. I don't think that's the case, Your Honor, and I'd like to start with Morton, which I think provides the first clue that that's not the case. When Morton was describing why the kind of preference that it, that it recognized would not violate equal protection was the case, it's because... I'm not talking about equal protection. I, I'm talking I, about Article 1. I understand, Your Honor, but it was describing that virtually every Indian preference in Title 25 dependent on a conjunction of an identifiable tribe of recognized Indians on the reservation. That's simply not true. I mean, you can state that at the podium, but if I look through Title 25, there are health care promises to individual Native Americans who live in urban areas. So Let's just all, take that one. First of Go all, on. Your Honor, that strikes me as commerce, at least at least in this court. Health care is commerce. Oh, commerce. So we're back to that. Okay, so health care is commerce. It's just this isn't. Whatever first this of all, is. No, child adoptions are not commerce. They simply are not. But health care is? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And, and environmental laws allowing regulation off reservation effects, that's, that's, that falls within commerce, but this doesn't? Entirely plausible. It's a function of either interstate or uh, either interstate commerce. How, or how about religious liberties and, and the right to access sites off, off reservation? Is that commerce? Not commerce, Your Honor, but that sounds, especially if there's a discriminatory component in the courts, no. or in the commerce, Congress's no, section p- promising five hours. A- no, you're, no, the law just says you get access to, to places and it preempts state law. Then there might be a pro- uh, title, like, there might, might be an go. Article One problem for the same reason why there was in RIFRA. Like right I now. say, I think there's a lot that you're asking us to, we're going to be busy, counsel, if this is the line we're going to draw. Very, very busy. We are not requesting that this court shrink at the plenary power it's recognized one bit. Everything that has been upheld previously on the same basis it's been upheld previously. And do you it's, agree with your colleague on the, uh, who spoke earlier that Congress could effectively do this same law, uh, maybe with a few nibbles around the edges, uh, commandeering, whatever, but could, could, could adopt something like ICWA through a treaty power and through the spending clause? 
I think the problem on the treaty power side is that it would provoke the question this court left open in bond, which is the question of whether or not Congress may legislate pursuant to a treaty in a way that would exceed its Article I powers or other limits on the Constitution. I don't know what the answer to that question is, Your Honor, but that would be squarely presented at that S point. Spending clause? Spending clause, at least the equal protection problem would remain, at least for that, for purposes of the spending clause. It would get around the anti-commandeering problems. So this states. is a magic words problem we have here today. Certainly not, Your Honor. Congress is not free, as a matter of fact, to regulate 50 state child, uh, 50 state child adoption proceedings on the basis of race, regardless of what it calls it. Can I ask you a question? Um, I'm going to list a series of statutes, and I just want a yes or no. Does Congress have the power to pass the statute? And second, why isn't it, or is it, anti-commandeering, okay? The statute protecting service members from default judgments, including in child custody cases, which requires notice, appointment of counsel, stays of proceedings, and in some cases, the setting aside of judgment. Does Congress have the power to pass that? Only under anti-commandeering problems or Article One. I said after under Article One. Under oh, under Article One, yes, that's fine for Article now, One purposes. Now, you think it's a violation of the anti-commandeering statute? Yes, Your Honor. The statute on inter-country adoptions, which says that a state court must verify certain evidence and make certain determinations. Inter-country adoptions, foreign power, right? Yes. Is this anti-commandeering also? May I? Yes. <clears throat> uh, I would have to know more about the treaty. It would not I, violate Article I One because of the you, treaty. I would have to know more that details. A, that a state court must verify certain evidence and make certain determinations before it permits the intercountry adoption. My first instinct is that that is right on the line. The verify component sounds as though it would be anti-common. I've gone through. Your light is on. I'll wait to finish my examples. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas. Justice Alito? All right. Then that's the 17... <laughs> getting it moving. The 1799 Trade and Intercourse Act, which requires state courts to take proper bail for certain individuals arrested by federal authorities. Can the government do that? To state courts? Article 1, yes. Anti-commandeering, no. Okay. The 1834 Trade and Intercourse Act, sets the standards of proof in property disputes involving Indians? Certainly, Your Honor, in part because those were specifically applying to either United States territories or, as this Court observed in Castro Huerta, on Indian reservations, which at that point were understood functionally like federal enclaves. That's completely fine. How about uh, a law from 1888 setting forth certain evidence that an Indian woman could use in state court to prove that there was a common law marriage? Could they do that? I don't know, Your Honor. I have to see more about the statute because, for example, if there were a geographic component and a tribal component, assuming that might justify not. it. I, assuming or there's not, I don't think so. Anywhere in any state court, they, they don't have Article I, and they, it's anti-commandeering violation, both? It's that it would be an anti-commandeering violation. It might, depending on the rest of the statute, it may or may not be an Article I violation. How about a statute that says that state law enforcement can enforce immigration law so long as they follow certain minimum procedures. Why isn't that anti-commandeering? 
because it says can. It allows the statute, it allows the states to choose to do so or not. Right. For the same reason that if Congress says, you may regulate or we will, but does not force states to do so, that's not a commandeering violation. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Kagan? General, I thought I'd just give you a chance to respond to um, uh, a reaction I had to your brief. And the reaction was that there is an extraordinary amount of Texas's view of policy. Uh, in your brief. So I'll just read you a few things. You say that ICWA subordinates the needs of Indian children, that it results in chaotic and often tragic outcomes, that it returns children to unsafe environments, that it excuses physical abuse, that it contributes to the alarming statistics surrounding Indian child welfare. I could go on. I haven't really even touched the surface. Um, now, this may be Texas's view. It's It's not a view that uh, any other state has told us it's, it, it shares. I don't know whether Texas's view are right or not. I um, don't have any policy views in this area to speak of. I don't know enough. I mean, the point is courts don't know enough, really. Um, uh, this is a matter for Congress, isn't it? It's not a matter for the courts to decide whether ICRA does these terrible things or whether ICRA doesn't do any of them. Isn't that really Congress's judgment that we're supposed to respect? Uh, two parts, Your Honor. The first is I agree that those observations, those, those statements of Texas's views have nothing to do with non-delegate or non-delegation anti-commandeering or, or Article I challenges whatsoever. Those live or die on various legal principles that are not those. They're just atmosphere. They're in part atmosphere, yes, Your Honor, in part because there's a dispute about whether or not equal protection, the equal protection standard here is rational basis or strict scrutiny. Now, my friends on the other side haven't attempted to defend this as a matter of strict scrutiny. And so to the extent that Congress is describing that it has a certain purpose, the fact that that purpose has been woefully unmet by the actual effects of ICWA is relevant for purposes of this court's, albeit quite forgiving, rational basis standard. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch. You agree that uh, Congress could do something like ICWA if it were limited to children on reservations? Absolutely, Your Honor. If it were limited to something, if it were only applying to tribal members on tribal reservations, okay. at least for tribal courts, it could give full jurisdiction to them. How do we deal with the fact that, you know, we, we talked about reservations throughout this conversation and in the briefs, but Indian land throughout the Western United States, as I'm sure you appreciate, after the, post, after the allotment era, is full of checkerboards. And so you're going to have children who may be on allotted Indian land or next door to it, not on allotted Indian land. And uh, I, I, part of what you're doing, your, your argument would encourage is for people to keep their children on Indian land, not necessarily allow them to be foster cared off Indian land, create a disincentive, and also just a massive amount of confusion if everything depends upon the happenstance of geography. Congress certainly has the power, if it wished, to be able to take new lands and essentially add them to allotments or reservations, or to sort of deem for purposes of Article One of a, you know, an Indian land or a place of Indian land, this is the reservation or relevant Indian lands for purposes of what we're discussing, how we're acting upon an Indian tribe. It might be the case that Congress actually has to appropriate money to take title to some of those provisions, but that would be the sort of administrative work that Congress the, the can The checkerboard problem just would persist. Unless Congress took actions to fix it, which it easily could with its enumerated powers. And then finally, it, it does seem like a lot of this focuses on, on the fact that this is family law. But and I, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the same question I asked Mr. McGill on this, which is 
really two parts of it. One is the federal government often plays a role in mediating disputes between sovereigns in the family law area, whether it's the Hague Convention internationally or whether the Parent Kidnapping Act domestically. So why would it be awkward to think that Congress could exercise a similar authority with respect to disagreements between state sovereigns and tribal sovereigns? So, so two points, Your Honor. The first, speaking of The Hague, of course, those are treaties between equal, full sovereign nations that are agreed to or not on the basis of one of those sovereigns who each have a chance to walk away. The most fundamental difference here, of course, is that the states have no choice to walk away from ICWA. Well, ICWA so the states have no choice to walk. They, they have to apply the Hague Convention, and they have to apply the Parent Kidnapping Act. They've got no choice in the matter. But the point is there's no mediating as between tribes and states on sovereigns. It's, it's the United States is saying you states shall do this, or through a combination That's of... That's exactly what it does in the Hague Convention Council and the Parent Kidnapping Act. It's state courts, you shall do this. It's a rule of decision that and, it sets forth. And for purposes of treaties, the Constitution recognizes that as an exclusive federal operation by conjunction of the power in Article 2 and removal of that from the states in Article 1, Section 10. Okay, so we're back to the, if they did this through treaty, it'd be okay. Or at least it would be a lot closer. All right. And then how about the fact that the federal government has been heavily involved in domestic affairs on, with respect to Native American children throughout our history, whether it's through treaties, orphan children, or whether it was through the, the boarding school saga of the last century? Um, why isn't that some evidence of, of, of plenary power in this area, too? Well, in part because, for example, with boarding schools, just the ordinary powers over territory and property or otherwise ordinary appropriations. They, they took children off reservation council. I understand that, Your Honor, and I understand that there's no getting around the fact that both federal and state history regarding Indian tribes carries a variety of very shameful and terrible elements. Well, but you're, you're saying it's all linked to territory. That one wasn't. The problem Same thing with all the treaties with respect to Native American orphans throughout the history of the country. The fact that there is a terrible problem Congress is attempting to remedy does not necessarily mean it has Article I power. After all, Congress attempted to, to remedy the nationwide problem of vicious domestic violence. And this court said that VAWA nonetheless fell outside the courts, outside Congress's Article I powers. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh. I want to ask about the equal protection issue uh, quickly. Um, the equal protection issue is difficult, I think, because we have to find the line between two fundamental and fundamental and critical constitutional values. So on the one hand, the great respect for tribal self-government, uh, for the success of Indian tribes with, uh, and Indian peoples with recognition of the history of oppression and discrimination against tribes and peoples. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the fundamental principle we don't treat uh, people differently on account of their race or ethnicity or ancestry, uh, equal justice under law. Uh, I don't think we would ever allow, um, as the court suggested in Palmore in 1984, Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. I don't think that would be permitted uh, under that principle of equal justice that we recognized in Palmer. So those are the two principles on equal protection that I think focus the inquiry. How do we draw the line? Well, Your Honor, I think first you look to Mankari itself, which took a first attempt at drawing this line. And as described in Rice and as applied from Mankari in the six cases that immediately followed, there were always at least two necessary preconditions, again describing Rice now. One, that the preference or the discriminatory rule or set aside always reached only, and this is in Rice, only 
members of a federally recognized Indian tribe, because that was the component that made it clear that you were dealing actually with the Indian tribe as a body and the people who constituted that body and not on the basis of race. And then second, Van Kari saw as significant that each of the preferences that it otherwise understood operated on or at least near an Indian reservation because the political preference related to self-government, it analogized to a couple of things, to individuals who sought to serve in municipal government to be able to promote the efficient delivery of services, to the territorial requirements of serving an office in the United States Constitution. And so those are the two components Mankari looked at as vital. ICWA includes neither. It, it operates only off of tribal reservations. It does not require a child who will be subjected to ICWA to be a member of the tribe. And I think that puts this clearly on the invidious race discrimination side of that very tricky line that you're highlighting. Thank you. Justice Barrett. General Stone, I want to take you back to the active efforts provision. One response that the government has is that the state could just choose not, could walk away, essentially, and certainly private parties have the option to participate or not in termination of rights proceedings or seeking foster care placement. How would that work? Could Texas walk away, you know, if you had a child um, who was a member of a tribe and was in a situation um, in which the child was in danger or, you know, it, like the Brackeen's children here, like, you know, YRJ, could Texas choose, could the Texas agency choose not to intervene or seek a foster care placement for the child? First of all, as a matter of Texas substantive law, no. But putting that aside, even if Texas substantive law allowed that, it'd be very strange for the federal government to say, this isn't commandeering because you can always just stop. You just not do it altogether. When it's talking about a core police power, which is saying the health, self, the health, safety, and welfare of vulnerable children. So I think the fact that that is the, the sort of component they're offering, aside from I have no idea how as a practical matter Texas could do that, the fact they're saying do it our way or else, I think is a, more in the nature of a confession than an explanation. Thank you. Justice Jackson? Yes. So um, in the Mankari case, we said, quote, the plenary power of Congress to deal with the special problems of Indians is drawn both explicitly and implicitly from the Constitution itself. Do you agree with that proposition? No, Your Honor, because we believe that at least some components of the plenary power are wrong as an original matter, but we are not challenging them for purposes All right, of this so case. All right, so we assume... So we accept them, we, yes. You accept this. Okay. What, what I'm worried about is what if the special problem of the Indians is the manner in which a state is handling custody determinations, is the manner in which placement determinations are being made, are these children being snatched from their homes, et cetera, et cetera, as a historical matter. I am not at all sure that anti-commandeering principles would prohibit the federal government who has plenary power over solving special problems of Indians to direct a state in light of uh, this power to do something about it. Justice Alito says they couldn't, could they legislate? I don't know that I can see that they couldn't given the plenary power. And I'm also worried about this, the sort of ahistorical gloss of this, because it seems to me that there is ample evidence historically that the design of the Constitution gave the federal government that very power at the expense of the states. 
that we had had a previous uh, a set of circumstances in which the federal government and the state government shared power uh, related to Indian affairs and that the Constitution came along and gave it to the federal government. So can you help me to understand, in light of all of those concerns, why we would have anti-commandeering principles at work to thwart the federal government from exercising the plenary authority that's been it's been given to deal with the special problems of Indians in this way. If you'll allow me to start with the historical materials and then I'll turn back to essentially an argument from precedent and then if there are any further questions, I'd be happy to, to resolve them. First, just speaking about just sort of original materials, the original draft of what eventually became the Indian Commerce Clause was submitted by James Madison as a power to I'm closely paraphrasing here, regulate Indian affairs within the U states. That was revised down by the Committee of Eleven to a narrower power to regulate Indian affairs, which was further revised down to a power to regulate Indian commerce. All right, so what about the Articles of Confederation? What, what do we do about the uh, inferences that people, historians, have told us that what was happening with the shift from the uh, way in which the power was structured at that point to the Constitution was about making sure that the federal government had certain authority and that this was one of those areas. Again, on this two points, the first being Federalist 42, I think, holds part of the answer, which my friends on the other side rely on. Federalist 42 specifically cites the two limitations regarding what was then Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation, and then later when it describes how it's re it removed itself of, I think, these, these embarrassments, it says, and then therefore this whole power will allow regulation of trade. It uses specifically the word trade to describe the power that has been unshackled by these two things. Not even commerce more broadly, but trade. So the idea that Federalist 42's understanding of the changes to, to Article 9 of the of the Articles of Confederation would have expanded to an, to an all-encompassing Indian affairs power, I think is just in the teeth of All that right, but in the arguments. actual Constitution, we have commerce, and we have historians that have said that at the time, commerce meant more than trade. It included intercourse. Justice Sotomayor has brought that up several times. So what do you say in response to that? The problem is here is the syllogism they're relying on, which is that commerce mean, can, can mean trade and intercourse. Intercourse can mean all relationships in between men and groups of men. Therefore, commerce means all relationships between groups of men. In Gibbons, in Story, in other original sources, intercourse is paired up with, specifically in Gibbons, with the word navigation, so as to describe what we now would refer to as the channels of commerce, the ability to set rules as to what foreign boats may dock in places. So intercourse doesn't get respondents the way to ICWA. It doesn't even get them beyond what we would ordinarily think of as the Commerce Clause now. Thank you, counsel.